Our text for today comes from the first letter to Timothy, which was written by an early Christian. Maybe Paul, maybe not, but either way, it's a Jesus follower writing to other Jesus followers about how to live life as a community. It's a letter about ethics. We pick up today in the sixth chapter, verses 6 through 10 and 17 to 19. Actually, godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. We didn't bring anything into the world, and we can't take anything out of it. We'll be happy with food, clothing. But people who are trying to get rich fall into temptation. They are trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way, they can take hold of what is truly life. For the wisdom of God in Scripture, for the wisdom of God among us, for the wisdom of God within us, thanks be to God. To listen to the loudest Christian voices, we might think Scripture is primarily concerned with sexuality and gender roles and family structure. But it is way more concerned with money and economics. There are more than 2,000 Bible verses directly about money. That's more than all the verses about faith and prayer combined. And more than 40% of Jesus' parables were directly about money, with many more of them speaking to it metaphorically. And Scripture's interest and guidance around money and economics deals with our very personal ethics and choices and goes as big and as broad as societal and governmental politics and economic structures that decide how we distribute resources. 
but we'd never know that's what the Bible was all about from what we hear in church a lot, except for those four weeks when we say, please pledge for next year's operating budget, which I am guilty of saving up what talk I give about money to just that time of year, which is a mistake. Because money's hard and complicated and uncomfortable and real. So real. And it drives far more of our lives than we'd like to think, than we'd like for it to. When I was maybe nine or ten, I was alone in the car with my dad driving to Raleigh. And my dad's not like a chatty guy. He's, <laughs> he doesn't talk just to talk. So driving alone with him, you have plenty of time to just get lost in your thoughts. And he's lost in his, and it's companionable and calming. And then he'll break the silence with something that occurs to him or something he's been mulling over in all that silence. So I'm about nine, and we're driving down Capitol Boulevard. And he says, Sarah, our whole economy, our whole world is based around breaking the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. And then he's quiet again. <laughs> this is what passes for normal conversation when your father is a Hebrew Bible scholar. He wasn't wrong, though. From our most far-reaching policy decisions to how we choose to spend the hours of our days, we are all caught in a system that is about getting what we don't have. It's about profit and the productivity that will produce more profit. We are stuck in that. And the author of this letter, who wrote long before our economic situation, is already warning about this impulse. Money, he says, is the root of all evil. It's quite a claim. When we make profit our goal, this author says, we physically do ourselves harm. He uses the image of impaling ourselves. We're hurt. And we hurt others and our earth. A lot of scripture isn't addressed directly to any one set of people or particularly to us. But I think this one is. We who are 
all wealthy by any global standard. And most of us who are more secure than many of our neighbors in this valley or in these mountains. And so to us, this text says, watch out. Loving money, trusting in money, making it our goal, will not lead to life, which is what God wants for us, what God longs to give us, life, real life. And I think we know that, that money won't actually save us. We may try to rationalize it or ignore that reality, but we know this way of life that we are collectively caught in and part of is killing us and everybody around us. And our home, this earth. I think the youth and kids among us know this better than any of us. They see it crystal clear. This is the world we are giving them. My kids have certainly taught me a lot about the earth, about how my choices impact it. Zoe received an absolutely adorable little stuffed three-toed sloth about a year ago. They gave me permission to tell you about it. And it has gone everywhere with us. And it sent Zoe down a rabbit hole of research about three-toed sloths. And we've learned all kinds of things in our household. Of course, they're slow, but they are also great swimmers. I had no idea. And my favorite sloth fact is that, in general, they tend to just come down from the trees once a week just to do their business, and then they go back up. Who knew? They also learned that sloths, particularly pygmy three-toed sloths, are desperately endangered, which sent me down my own rabbit hole of learning. They're endangered because their habitat's being destroyed. The Amazon, which the Amazon has been an abiding presence for all of human history. The river which gives life to the Amazon rainforest, and thus to the earth, was once a westward-flowing river that was part of the Congo River Basin in what is now Africa. And then tectonic plates shifted and separated and recombined 
and the Andes were pushed high up into the sky, and those waters became a lake, and then they began to flow eastward, watering three million square miles of land, giving rise to unimaginable beauty and diversity. And humans arrived maybe 16,000 years ago in the Amazon. And for most of those 16,000 years, played nice with the forest, lived in a web of reciprocity. And then in the last hundred, really the last 60 years, we started cutting it down in earnest. We want lumber, and we want oil, and we want cash crops. And the biggest driver, I learned, of deforestation of the Amazon is cattle ranching. And not just that, but most of that cattle ranching is not for the purpose of bringing beef or leather to market, but simply to establish land claims just for the purpose of the possibility of future profit so that I can have it and they won't. If we're going to survive, we've got to learn to live differently or simply. Want less. Live with less. We know that, and still, one of the ways that I cope with stress is to go to Target and buy junk I don't need. A lot of it is plastic, and it will never go away. It even lives in the cells of our bodies. And I buy clothes I don't need, even though I know I don't need them, and that they are produced at the cost of people's lives and the lives of rivers and streams. And I do that so that maybe someone will say, cute top. Maybe you have similar habits. We all have something. I know that habit is killing me. Killing us. Killing our earth. It's not good for our souls. Which brings us to the question we struggled with last week, too. How do we live in the face of this reality? How do we cope with the grief and the anxiety and the reality around us? The author of 1 Timothy counsels contentment, satisfaction, generosity, living simply, all of which my heart longs for, and all of which I can have if I just buy the right book or follow the right TikTok 
or the right system. If you look on Goodreads for a recommendation of a book about living simply, it returns 1,392 options. And I want them all because some part of me believes if I can just find the right system, the right chart, the right storage solution, then my life will be simpler and tidy, magical. When profit drives the world, even living with less can become a source of profit for an enterprising entrepreneur. We're haunted. We're haunted by this despair and sense of powerlessness and guilt, I think, particularly when it comes to issues of money. But God is not about guilt. God is about freeing us from that. Guilt doesn't help anything. God wants to set us free from that and offer us life and liberation. And so the word here is not more guilt. It's more life. Choosing more life. More freedom. The author of 1 Timothy says, take hold of what is truly life. Ultimately, getting free of our love of money and stuff isn't about denial and deprivation and guilt. It's about life, real life, with a capital L. And we know what that kind of life feels like, what that kind of life is. It's having dear friends and time to spend with them. It's calling your 90-year-old mother every morning and every night just to hear her voice because you still can. It's sitting down and sharing a meal, even if it's just boxed macaroni and cheese. True life is found outside, forest bathing, or inside, watching the hummingbirds hover. It's growing things and fixing things and making art the weirder, the better. It's living in community with all the meetings that requires. It's saying, I have enough. Here, you have some. There's gracious plenty to go around. That's true life. That's what simplicity opens the door to. It's about freedom. Life with a capital L. That is what is waiting for us bit by bit as we set down all that stuff
stuff we drag around with us. If you ever want a reality check of how much stuff you are dragging around, move cross-country. I am still <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> Maybe it all boils down to asking ourselves, does this give life? Does this thing, this choice, this use of my time, this relationship, does it give life to me, to the people around me, to the earth? And if it does, let's have more of it. And if it doesn't, let's let it go. How would it feel to let some of that go? Would it feel like our shoulders, which are perpetually up here, relaxing down a ways? Would it feel like our lungs taking in more breath? Would it feel like our stomachs not hurting? How would it feel to live more simply? Whatever that means, wherever we are, right now, how would that feel to let something go? Try it with me, if you don't mind. You might close your eyes for this part, or not. You don't have to. You just let them rest in front of you. And as you're sitting there, however you're sitting, just clench your fists as hard as you can. Feeling all that stuff you are hanging on to for dear life. And when you're ready, let those fists relax. Feel the blood return. As your hands are ready, let them drift open. Finally holding nothing. Open just to receive life. Real life. May we live like that, with open hands and open hearts. Amen.